Hey friends, welcome to the Highland Church Podcast. We believe that you were made for God's mission. We encourage you to check out our website, highlandcc.org, where you can learn more about what you are called to in Christ Jesus. Let's hear a message today that we hope will challenge, encourage you, and ultimately help you to grow and identify your purpose in the plan of God. How many of you, as you're turning to Genesis 1, just think about this with me. Let me see a show of hands. How many of you think, I generally, not Eric, like you think about yourself, I generally love everybody. I'm generally generally kind to everybody. See some hands going up there. I'm gen- I tr- generally treat everybody with, with respect. I pretty much just love everybody. And it's easy to tell yourself that until you coach your kids a little league team. <laughs> There's always some dad there who thinks his second grader is going to get discovered by pro scouts at this game. I hope he's watching. He knows I'm talking about him. Uh, or, or, or this. You go to uh, the airport. You get on a plane, and why is it that airports bring out the worst in humanity? You know, so you never like sit by somebody on the plane and you think, oh, this is awesome. Uh, ironically enough, well, our community life minister met her husband on an airplane, but, we'll, you know, that's a, the exceptions prove the rule. Most people on planes are the worst. Like, that was the only reason they started liking each other, because everybody else on the plane was terrible. You know, um, or you, uh, you think you treat everybody nice, and then you log into social media. And you, you got onto social media that day thinking that your uncle was a normal person. And then you saw what he posted and you realized, my uncle's the worst. You know what I'm talking about? You know, it's, it's easy to think that, that you treat and love everybody. And then people just turn out to be kind of hard to love. And some people just aren't that great. And then treating them with love and respect gets harder, doesn't it? And in some ways, that's kind of a revelation about the mess that our world is in, that I treat people based on how I feel about them. And the problem is that human feelings are very vulnerable, very malleable. I mean, we joke about social media or getting on an airplane or Little League, but think with me for a second about the worst things that have happened in humanity's history. Think about things like slavery, genocide, war. And if you look back at all of those things, every time they are justified, good people participate in them, they are justified because we are convinced that someone else doesn't deserve to be treated well for some reason. And so I should feel about them less than I probably should. And so if you can get somebody to feel less about somebody than they should, then they're willing to do really terrible things to them. You know, one of the fascinating things that came out of World War II is, you know, terrible tragedies in so many respects. But after World War II, when the atrocities against Jews and others were revealed, committees and delegations from all over the world came together to talk about how did this happen? Like, how did things go so far that humans would do this to one another? And they began to search for, what, what was the thing that was lost? What was the thing that, we, that we, we had forgotten that was no longer guiding how we were treating each other 
and that therefore allowed it to escalate to this level. And the term they came up with is not a biblical term, but it's a term that then shows up in every constitution uh, that was written post-World War II. So it shows up in the German constitution in 1949. It shows up in the European Union, United Nations. They release statements and new constitutions that include this term. You know what the term is? Dignity. Dignity. The inherent dignity of all humans. And what's fascinating is if you look back on those notes of those committees and delegations, again and again, they go to this source that we wouldn't expect secular people to go to. You know what the source was? Genesis 1. Come with me to Genesis 1.26. This is where they got that idea of human dignity from. This is where it comes from. Genesis 1.26, this is at the end of God's six days of creation. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, them, male and female, he created them in the image and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they'll be yours for food and all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? How many of you have heard that phrase a thousand times in church, maybe even in the secular world? Yeah, well, they're made in the image of God. You're made in the image. Does, does anybody know what that means, to be made in the image of God? Um, well, let me point out a couple things. The first, and this is kind of a side note, the most important word in that phrase, made in the image of God, the most important word may actually be the first word, made. Uh, we talked about this last week, that our problem as humans is that we are self-centered people in a God-centered world. And our creation, our design, the, the very language of it, in his image, he created them. They are made in the image of God. The very language of our creation reminds us that we are made, that we're not the makers. You know, this, this idea of a self-made man or woman who pulls themselves up by their bootstraps or responsible for their own well-being and good, that is a myth. The Bible says from the beginning, no one's self-made. We're all made by the maker. So that orients our whole lives back to the one who makes us. But that, that doesn't mean that humans are like the rest of creation. The rest of creation is made or created, but that doesn't mean that humans are like the rest of creation because humans are unique in having been made in the image of God. It's the thing that's different about you and me. So what is it? Yeah, one, one scholar calls this phrase made in the image of God, he says, this means that every person has a divine mark on them. And that makes me think about Harry Potter and the, you know, like the lightning bolt scar on his head. And apparently this isn't the Harry Potter crowd. Um, that kid's psyched. Uh, you know, Harry Potter had this mark on his head that kind of set him apart from everybody else. And it was about his destiny. Is that what this is about? Is there a physical dimension to the image of God in us? Does this mean that God looks like me? Is that what it means? Or that I look like God? 
eh, maybe. You know, there might be some physical part to it, but most people think that the image of God in us is talking about those other human qualities that are unique to humans. So think about things like human morality or concept of right and wrong. So when a cheetah is chasing a gazelle across the African savanna, like as he's about to chomp on the gazelle, he's not thinking to himself, like, should I do this? You know, is this right? Is this wrong? Or you think about human creativity, you know, what's notable is that the image of God is given to us in the moment of God creating things. And humans do have this creative capacity that the rest of the animal kingdom doesn't have. You know, I think about all the apps on my cell phone, and those aren't made by rhinos or pandas. You know, they're made by humans. Humans have that kind of creative capacity, and only humans have it. So maybe that's the image of God in us. Other people think it's human reason. You know, we're the only species that cares about truth and pursues truth. That's why you're here, right? Uh, Maybe it's human justice. We're the only species that has developed laws and governments. Maybe it's human aesthetics. We're the only ones that care about beauty. Probably at some level, all of those things are indicative of that divine mark on us, the image of God on us. At some level, they're all about that. You want to know something that's, that's kind of interesting? We talk about the image of God all the time, and the Bible never actually concretely defines what the image of God is on us. What the Bible's a lot more concerned with is what the image of God does for us. Uh, It's not so much about the substance, it's about the status. So let me show you this. Look back with me at verse 26. Here's what I want you to see. However you define what the image of God is, what I want you to notice is that it's the image of God in us that places us over or above the rest of creation. Look at this, 126. God says, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness. Why? So that they may rule over, over is the key word, the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Okay, so go back with me to, you know, to post-World War II. We have all these delegations from all over the world coming together, and what they're searching for is, what is it that sets humans apart from everything else? And therefore, we keep humans from doing terrible things to each other. And this is where they went. Because what do we see here? That what God does is he makes everything, and then he makes us, but he gives to us in making us an image, his image. And that image is what raises us over or above the rest of creation, beneath him and over everything else. Now, you just think logically with me for a second. You know, you think about the various caste systems in our world's history and and currently, systems whereby humans are ranked and treated based on where they rank. And look at this. The first thing that God does for humans in creating them is ranks them all the same and then places them above the rest of creation. And so what comes with that is this idea of dignity, that every human has something in them that nothing else in creation has. And that thing, the image of God, is what ranks them above everything else. But why would God do that? Why would God, think about it, have you ever asked yourself this? I mean, you've heard about this, the image of God forever. Have you ever asked yourself, why would God place his image on humans and therefore elevate them above everything else. 
Here's what I want you to do this afternoon. This afternoon, I want you to go back and I want you to reread Genesis 1 this afternoon. We read it last week in service. I want you to go back and do it again. As God creates the whole world, what you'll notice is that God creates a world that's ordered and symmetrical. He creates a world that's beautiful. He creates a world that's balanced. And so we associate all of those things with the Garden of Eden. What you would notice if you read the rest of the Old Testament is that those adjectives are the same adjectives that are used to define temples. And so when we think about creation, what we got to think about is not so much God making a garden that he liked to hang out in, but God building his temple where he would dwell. Creation. And so you look at those same adjectives, ordered, beautiful, symmetrical, and that doesn't just describe the temple that God makes in creation. That describes every temple really in the history of the world. I mean, I'm thinking about like the Greek temples that you can still go visit today with their giant columns. Everything's ordered and beautiful and symmetrical. And so even pagans had temples and they recognized that gods were attracted to a setting like this. And so you would go to one of those settings to receive blessing. And noticeably in Genesis 1, what does God do to his creation? Blesses it, blesses it, blesses it. This is what happens in a temple. And so pagans would go to their pagan temples. And in every pagan temple, what would there be in the temple? In addition to beauty and order and symmetry, what would there be? An image of the God. Because if you're coming into this temple to get blessed by and worship this God, you need to know what this God is like. And so in every one of those temples, there's an image of God. Now, what do we call an image of God in a pagan temple? An idol, right? Okay, you want to know something? That word translated idol in the rest of the Old Testament is the same word right here. Think about it like this. An idol is an image of a fake God, the word is Selim, an idol is an image of a fake God, and we are images of the real God. That's what makes us not idols. Idols are images of fake God. We are images of the real God. So why is the Jewish temple the only ancient temple that doesn't have images in it? Because God has already put his image in his temple. You and me. And so the purpose, my purpose as somebody made in the image of God is to communicate to the rest of the world what this God that I'm imaging is like. And so eventually God puts 7 billion of his images in his temple. And what kind of God puts 7 billion images of himself in his temple? A God who wants you to know what he's like. A God who wants you to notice him. And so my job as an image of God If you think about what the images did in the ancient world, which was to reflect the fake God they were supposed to represent, my job as an image of the real God is to reflect the real God to the rest of the world. So some people have talked about it like a, let's see, yeah, a mirror, like a 45 degree mirror. And so my job basically is to hold this 45 degree mirror. And so as God's glory and character and purposes shine down on me, they're reflected out into the rest of the world. So somebody looks at me and what do they see? God. Like, that's, that's my purpose. Okay. So we're going to come back to that in this series, my purpose in reflecting God. But here, let me ask you the question that goes back to where we started with. What if somebody is a lousy image of God? 
you know, what if somebody is not doing their job of, of reflecting God into the rest of the world? Uh, whether that's somebody on social media or at the DMV or the airport, wherever, wherever that is. What if, what if somebody is not doing this job? What if somebody takes that mirror that's supposed to be reflected towards God and towards the world and they turn it on themselves, they become obsessed with their own image? Now, that's Paul in Romans 1. They exchange worship of the creator for created things. That's the image of that. You flip it on yourself and you're obsessed with yourself. So what if somebody does that? What if they're a lousy image of God? Does that mean that they have lost the image of God in them? And this is one of the most important things um, for the people of God to understand. You cannot lose the image of God. You cannot lose it. Let me show you. In Genesis 9... God's talking to Noah and his sons. This is after the flood. Remember what happened in Genesis 3. Human sin, the image of God in them is defaced to some extent. And we wonder if that means that humans don't have this dignity or value anymore. But look at this in Genesis 9. This is after sin. After everyone has become sinful. After all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Look at this in Genesis 9. And from each human being, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed for why? In the image of God, God has made mankind. And lest you think this is just an Old Testament thing, let me show you this in James. This is in James chapter 3, verse 9, New Testament. With the tongue... With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness or image. Look at that. Okay, this, God designs us with this identity marker, this divine mark, and it, it determines our purpose in the world, that is to image God. But from the beginning, it is this image in us that shapes every interaction we have with every other human. And what he says is, and what is consistent through the rest of the Bible, is that from how I talk to somebody to not killing them, that whole range, everything that falls in between there is outlawed, is not okay. Why? Because people are made in the image of God. Because they have a value that comes from a source that is beyond this earth, that has been given to them and them specially, specifically. And I dare not mistreat them because of it. The same God who made them made me. They have the mark of God on them like I have on me. And so my obligation is to treat humans like I would treat God. Think about that. Yeah, y'all know this. You know, maybe in some ways I'm preaching this for the rest of the world. Because we live in a time where everybody wants this to be the case. We want to live in a world where everybody treats each other well. We just don't remember why we should. I, I was... You know, I, I like bike racing and riding, and I was reading an article recently. There was this big bike race that came to Arkansas, and um, 
A couple of people showed up at this big bike race in Arkansas to protest the involvement of some of the other people, become some ethical and moral, moral things they thought they had violated. And so they stood there on the sidelines of this race with little signs protesting these people. And afterwards, one of the participants in the race, one of the racers, posted this big thing on social media. And, and what he said is that hate has no place in cycling. Cycling should be a safe place. And I agree. Hate doesn't, you know, have a place there in cycling. But on what grounds? You know, why should hate be outlawed or banned from cycling? You haven't given me the reason why everybody matters and deserves to not be treated that way. You can't just expect humans to just feel so good about each other that they treat each other so good all the time. You got to have a, a deeper standard than that. That's such a reflection on the mess of our world. I've heard it said like this, we want the kingdom without the king. You know, we want this place where everybody's thriving, humans are all flourishing, people are treating each other so well and lovingly and kind, and just everybody just has these good feelings towards each other, but we've totally divorced that from the reason why you treat everybody good and kind. And if you divorce the reason from the goal, you're not going to get to the goal. You know, if you, if, if, you, if you eliminate the designer, the maker, the one who made us and gave us value in the first place, then humans don't have any value. Think about it like this. The, the famous atheist Richard Dawkins was at a debate in Oxford a few years ago. And a woman in the audience, she asked him, what sense can you make of the senseless tragedy of the violent death of a young child? And he looked at her for a while and he said, I'm sorry, I, I don't see a tragedy here. There's no problem here. This is simply the, the workings of evolution. It might be sad for the mother, but there's no problem here. And doesn't that outrage you? Doesn't that make you mad? But on what grounds is he wrong? I mean, think about it. Sometimes we talk about the problem of evil, and what we mean by that is how could a good God allow evil in the world? But recognize if there is no God, no God who has given to humans value higher than the rest of creation, then there's nothing wrong with taking a life. There's nothing wrong with mistreating anybody you don't feel good about because they don't have any value from some higher source. It's just evolution. It's just life working itself out. Survival of the fittest. If humans don't have value from a source beyond themselves, then they don't have value, he would say. And so let me point you back to this. I mean, this is why we need this story in our lives. You know, it's why... It's why we need to be rooted in God's plan or God's story. Because right here, you have the basis for morality, for justice, for human flourishing. There's a God who made us. He placed his image on us. And so we treat each other with dignity, no matter how we feel about each other, because each of us has dig dignity that's been given to us by, by God. Um. The great South African justice advocate Desmond Tutu died a few weeks ago. You may have seen this. And Desmond Tutu fought against racial injustice in South Africa for years and years, the system of apartheid in that country. And I was reading through some of the stuff that he had written and said over those years, and he said this, and it struck me as I was preparing for this sermon. This was years ago. He said, the system of this country, apartheid, is immoral. The system of this country is evil. And I think he was right. But leave that up there for a second. Notice the words he used and the words he didn't use. 
The system of this country is illegal. No, he said it's immoral. And that's an appeal to a deeper truth, right? He didn't say the system of this country is unfair. He said it's evil. And how can there be evil unless there's good? Christians, the people of God, believe that every person is made in God's image and therefore deserves to be treated like that. Now, this is hard to remember. Um, and I'll admit I have forgotten it from time to time. But this is why it's so important that my life be grounded in this story because I'm going to leave this place. On the drive out of here, I'm going to begin interacting with people who I won't always feel good about. And yet every one of those people is made by God in God's image. And so they deserve better from me. Think about it like this. I'll leave you with this as we prepare for communion. If you have communion, why don't you grab that? We're going to take it together. As I've been trying to figure out what the image of God is, what keeps coming to mind for me is artwork. And so Lindsay and I were in Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago. We went to some art museums, famous art museums while we were there. And I got to thinking about it. And I thought, you know, if I, if I took, you know, one of my homemade drawings and I, I posted it on the wall in the Smithsonian or something, and somebody came by and they, they you know, drew on it like a mustache on my face or something like that, it, nobody would care. They'd just tear it down from the wall. It wouldn't be a big deal. But if somebody did that to, I don't know, like a Vincent Van Gogh painting or a Rembrandt painting, uh, you know how much money and resources we would use to try to restore that thing? I mean, think about it. There's no expense we would spare. 1974, I think, Picasso's Guernica painting, which is this large mural, depicts a really terrible tragedy, but it's a famous picture painted by Picasso. Somebody walked into the museum and they wrote in big red spray paint, spray paint across Picasso's Guernica. You know what they did? They spent eight years painstakingly peeling off that spray paint. Eight years. Think about it. what gives paintings like that value is not their quality. I don't necessarily like Picasso's painting. It's who made it. Are you with me? And because of who made it, it has infinite value. You know, what length should we not go to to restore somebody who's made in God's image? Made by God. So that brings us to Jesus. What Colossians tells us about Jesus, since we take the Lord's Supper together, here's what I want you to remember. What Colossians tells us about Jesus, it, we are all made in the image of God, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God, we're told. So every one of us, as we interact with one another, deserves dignity and respect and honor. That's how we treat people who are made in the image of God and have God's mark on us. How much more does Jesus deserve from us? He's not just an image of God, he's the image of God and deserves our worship. And of course, then, that helps us to see what great tragedy it was that he was killed. Like this masterpiece that's defaced and ruined. What a tragedy. But of course, the image of God is destroyed for, for us. And that's what we remember in this time. It's destroyed for us and restored by the maker. Praise God. Let's remember that as we take this meal together. Lord, I thank you for Jesus, your image. God, I pray that we would honor and worship him in this moment where we reflect on his death for us, that your masterpiece was destroyed, that we might have life 
that we might become your works of art. And I praise you, God, for that. God, I also pray that we would be people that see your image in everyone we interact with every day and that they deserve and we would give them honor and dignity and respect because they have you and your mark on them. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.